0: Welcome to this podcast of "But Did You Die," podcast by Ops Medical Group with your host Craig, Mandy, Wendy and me, John. We are in acute care and emergency medicine clinicians. Our goal with this podcast is to provide education and entertainment by bringing you insights into our experiences to help you better understand critical aspects of medicine. We hope that our stories provide you both uh, an insight into the technical and human side of medicine. Our ultimate goal is to help you develop the technical, mental, and emotional tools to handle emergent events. Welcome back, everybody. Let's talk about some trauma today. I think we'll try to have it focused on pre-hospital persons but also sort of the public in general so that you know, there's a motor vehicle collision, a car wreck, or even, heaven forbid, uh, the active shooter. There's some sense of preparation that people have they know how to manage it, what to expect, all those kinds of things. When we're going through uh, our training in emergency medicine, we're classically taught uh, from the uh, ATLS system, which is the Advanced Trauma Life Support System. Um, the military, however, uses a different algorithm, which is called MARCH, with an E at the end, uh, and that Basically, puts uh, bleeding at the forefront because if you think about what the military is most concerned about, it's bleeding out, and their thought process is very logical. What's going to kill you the first is blood loss. So uh, I do think that's really applicable not only for um, our pre-hospital persons but also for um, the public in general, um, and especially since you know when we start talking about you know airway management in uh, the ATLS. You know, sort of the classic ATLS system. Um, oftentimes, we're thinking about it in terms of it, intubation. So we have equipment at the bedside, um, or, or the EMS teams have the equipment. Whereas, if you're, you know, involved in a car wreck or uh, pull up to the scene of one, uh, you unlikely have that. But if you see, you know, massive bleeding, you should you should take care of that first. So, um, one of the things I it was interesting. I took a, a trauma course couple months ago, and um, they put us through some different scenario training, but one of the things they did, probably within the first 30 minutes of being there, there's the train. <laughs> 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 uh, so within the first 30 minutes of us being there, uh, they had us uh, take out the tourniquets that they had provided us for us. Um, and these were the, the cat tourniquets, the combat, mm-hmm. what is this? Combat uh, application tourniquet? Okay. Um, Uh, And um, apply it to ourselves. But the catch was, he actually showed a video of one of their uh, pig labs where they were training. And so they would open the artery and you'd watch the artery, you know, spit out blood really fast, really fast, really fast. And then it slowed down and slowed down and it like went to a trickle. Um, Took a right around 30 seconds to basically bleed out. So he's like, okay, I'm gonna start this video. And I'm gonna say go, and I want y'all to put the, um, the tourniquet. Uh, tourniquet on. And he's like, You can use your dominant hand. He's like, That's fine. And so starts the video, says go. Everyone's like trying to get the tourniquet on, and like 99% of us are dead because <laughs> we can't get it on fast nice. enough. It was a real eye opener to see if you're not used to putting these things on, or if you already, if you've never done it, then you're gonna have not probably enough time. Um, so that was, I felt pretty interesting um, because I've never tried to put a tourniquet on myself um, and like I said, I was I was trying to apply it with my dominant hand and I still didn't make the 30 second window um, and uh, I would say I'd feel bad, but I would have been dead so it wouldn't really matter so, <laughs> you
1: wouldn't have uh, felt too bad too, felt long.
0: bad too long enough um, uh, but I thought that was, that was a really good training exercise, very eye opening um, to see like, okay, this is can't mess around with this you need to be familiar with it uh they also talked about how you know most of the time people are like oh I'll, I'll use my belt it's like that's like that really doesn't work like it just people try to use a belt you can't get it tight enough um they're that's actually better just to, like tear part of your t-shirt tie it off um and make a tourniquet that way um but I appreciated that different uh algorithm that 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 trauma course taught um which aligned with the the military's March protocol. Um, So I guess we'll start going into the March protocol. It's an uh, uh, algorithm, yes, it is an algorithm. Uh, It's also an acronym just like everything else in medicine. M is for massive hemorrhage, A is for airway, R is for respirations, C is for circulation, H is for uh, hypothermia and head injuries, and then the E is for everything else, like burns, stuff like that. Um, and the idea with that, as well as with the traditional ATLS protocol, is you don't go uh, from you don't go to a airway until M massive hemorrhages control. taken care control. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that I was always taught is you constantly re-eval, re-eval. So you go through, you know, M-A-R-C-H-E and then you go back through M-A-R-C-H-E just to kind of keep making sure because traumas are dynamic, things change, uh, you may things have come loose. things come loose, especially if you're moving people. Yep. Um, which is a, another thing to, to, be aware of. Um, when you're moving thing moving people, make sure that all of your stuff is secure, re-evaluate it. Mm-hmm. Um, once you've, once you've got them moved, um, But, you know, controlling the bleeding, I think, is one of those things that definitely for the public, but pre-hospitals, and and I would even argue to an extent in the hospital, I mean, we can, that is something that we can uh, very much focus on, make an an impact on right away because uh, bleeding to death will will kill you faster than uh, just about anything else. Um, Obviously, in the hospital setting, we'll take care of airway, and I think what makes some of these algorithms hard is that it's happening at the same time a lot of a lot of times. Like where where I trained, the trauma bay, like the you know, <laughs> there was one group that was getting the airway, there was one group that was doing a chest tube, there was one group that was um, hanging blood, getting IV, like everything was happening
1: simultaneously. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's
2: how.
0: So
1: there's a,
2: yeah, there's, there's a ginormous, I know you didn't get to see it, but there's a ginormous difference between pre-hospital and inpatient, right? The minute you walk into the hospital, everything changes because you're supposed to be trained. You're supposed to already have the experts, you know, you already have the EM guy, you have the trauma surgeon, or you have the trauma MP or PA that's at the bedside that's going to manage a lot of stuff and then say, hey, you know what, this guy needs to go to the operating room. And then you have a ton of trauma nurses that really kind of cover everything else and save everything in the long run because they're the ones executing everything as far as the orders are concerned. But it's very different because pre hospital you have to go and first address the bleeding because if you don't address the bleeding, that patient's dead. Plain and simple. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. Uh, you know, there's no EKG right there and then, there's nothing else. You're going to like, identify, treat.
1: You have to be very to good at your own clinical skills yeah. out there, like very sharp.
2: Yeah, there is, without a question, those guys, you know, you train them to the point that they get this system down and they just flow with it. They're able to do, you know, the, go from their hemorrhage to their airway to their respiration to the circulation and then kind of start all over again, you know, as far as, you know, managing. Is there a, you know, the head injury part, you know, is there an actual head injury as a patient? neurologically intact and whatnot. And then the quick phone call, like, you know, is it a nine line or is it an EMS line? that I'm gonna pick up the phone and say, hey, we're gonna move this patient right now. Well,
0: and the other thing I f- forgot to, to lead with, which is really, really important, if you're uh, pre-hospital, public is uh, seen safety. Mm-hmm. So before you even go to start, you know, holding compression on a wound or putting a tourniquet, uh, make sure that there's not still an active shooter around. Make sure that you're not in the middle of the road. That you're in a safe environment because if you become a casualty, well, you didn't help the situation. You just made it worse. Right. Um, so I think having that awareness of is the scene safe? Because the last thing you need to do is add to the casualty count. Um, which obviously we don't even have to think about it in the in the ER uh, in the hospital. We don't have to. That's not. Hopefully, that's not something that we should be thinking about. Um, but if you're, you know, first responder, if you're just a member of the public who's, you know, trying to trying to help, make sure things are safe before you step in in, in harm's way and become another casualty. You ever see that happen in the yeah. field?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. If, if you know, guys will rush into something sometimes, and then, people, you know, people start shooting at you, and it's like oh shit, I didn't think it was, there was still somebody out there. Oops.
0: The guy guy who taught this trauma course that I took was a.
2: And it changes the dynamic. It's like really super fast because then it's like you have to have superior firepower at that point to go and secure the area and then make sure you can move your guy. And sometimes you're not even treating, you're just moving the person to a different location so that way you can just treat the person at that point.
0: The guy who taught the the trauma course that I attended was a retired Green Beret medic, and he was telling a story about one of, I guess it was his, it wasn't one of his direct teammates, but he was over multiple teams. So was, was, this guy was doing chest compressions on someone, and he was. He was covered, like he was under uh, under cover. So we say, but what happened is, as he did chest compressions, he wasn't paying attention, and he was like kind of raising his head up as he was continuing to compress, and his head just went just above the car or whatever was making him safe, and a sniper shot his head off.
1: Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. like Yikes. crazy, but in the, you know, and that's battlefield setting. So yeah. hopefully, you're not. That's not the situation that you're dealing with in you know in the civilian world. But the point was made. Pay attention to your surroundings, um, because uh, you know, even if you're, I mean, even if you're hiking in the woods and your friend gets bit with a snake, make sure the damn snake's gone before you go <laughs> and like try to get the get your friend out. You know, you don't get a second snake bite. So, um, but I thought that story was was pretty crazy. So one of the things you know that I you know wanted to to do though is to sort of share these algorithms with the, the public, uh, pre-hospital persons get great training in that, uh, the ER uh, gets great training in, in how to manage that, but if you're just a, a citizen, you know, trying to do the, do the right thing, helping out, um, first, of, uh, first off, uh, the Good Samaritan law does apply, so you're, you're covered, you're not like liable or anything like that, unless you decide to commit a felony on the side. Um, but if you're really trying to do the right thing, that shouldn't be an issue. Um, and that way you have a plan of action because I don't remember getting taught any of this stuff in, like, I mean, I guess I I guess I learned about some of the stuff in Boy Scouts. But, like, I don't remember talking about this in high school or junior high or anything. I mean, even health class, I don't remember. Maybe no. that's because I was.
3: I feel like Boy Scouts is so fitting for you,
0: by the way. <sighs> That's just was like a good time. Was the a good
3: quintessential time. American
0: right there. <laughs> it was a good time. It was a good time. I had a good, I had a good group of guys. So, um, But I you know, would love to see this integrated into, and I think some schools are integrating it now, sadly enough, because we're having school shootings um, mm-hmm. that we realize, hey, everyone needs to be able to manage
1: something, At unfortunately. something, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, not to oversimplify it, but, you know, if you see something bleeding, put pressure on it. If you don't, I mean, if you don't have a tourniquet, just put pressure on it as best you can. Um, it might not work, but it's definitely not going to work if you don't try. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, 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 those, those are some simple things to do. Um, I think it's always beneficial to to try to take a trauma course. Um, And we're putting together a trauma course that will have aimed towards the public, but we'll have another one that'll be aimed more towards healthcare professionals, um, because I do think that this would be really valuable. Um, I know that, uh, I guess it was about two weeks ago now, we had a guy who was dropped off, and now this is in the ER, so it wasn't pre-hospital, but he was dropped off. Literally pushed out of the car in the drive-through of the ER.
1: The honk so, and holler. Yeah,
0: yeah. And so <laughs> the uh, charge nurse—that's what we <laughs> used
1: to call it—honk and holler. <laughs> like we'd get people that would do that yeah. honk, and just throw somebody out the car and they the drive. It off. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, charge nurse ran, uh grabbed this guy, put him in a wheelchair, brought him back. He got on the bed. He was—he was dead when he got on the bed. He had three or four. Uh, laceration puncture wounds to the anterior chest and the axilla just under the armpit Ooh. and it looked I'm not going to say professional but it definitely looked
1: very purposeful
0: it, it looked cartel With some intense it, <laughs> it looked it, yeah it looked and it was you know he, he was definitely bleeding out of those um but no pulse so we started to do CPR um and again I have a I had teams, team, so everyone was trying to you know, get pressure on these wounds, but the thing was where they were... Like, where you can't you hold couldn't, pressure well, where that's... not only can you not hold pressure, you can't do a tourniquet. Like, it wasn't at an exterior part of the yeah. extremity. It was right up in the armpit. So we're packing it with combat galls and trying to get it, you know, as much as we can, um, but I just was like, okay, this guy's dead. I... Have nothing to lose, so I put a needle in each side of his chest to decompress him, and we got a pulse back so I'm assuming that he was having a tension pneumothorax, and we relieved that we got a pulse back started hanging blood um, and all right moved on so that was kind of my thought process there is like okay we've got we've got hemorrhage and he's he, he's probably hemorrhaging into his cap, body cavity, so it's a little bit different than if it was on his leg or something like that but we need to still do what we can do. Then I had to go from hemorrhage to, okay, now the hemorrhage in this case, inside the body is probably collapsing as long. So I've got to decompress that. Uh, So um, stuck the needles in. Um, Maybe it had nothing to do with it. I I don't know. Um, Ultimately, I ended up having to put chest tubes in, um, which uh, got a lot of blood out on the left, uh, just air out on the right. we also got some gastric contents out on the left um, actually, I take that back it didn't, that didn't come back from the chest tube. that would be really bad when we were doing chest compressions, gastric contracts were coming out of one of the wounds, and I was like, that sucks um, yeah, yeah it was is, is, is it was bad i haven't seen anything evil. that With bad since i haven't seen anything that bad in a while that was uh, is pretty bad, uh, but no I, I did not. Uh, put a chest tube in the stomach, so I'm just put that on <laughs> <I might> now. <laughs> Your <laughs> aim's way off. Just that was,
1: just saying, that, that was been not
0: bad. <laughs> that did not happen. But the gastric contacts were coming out of uh, the guy's wound, um, so we got that in. Got got him intubated, and again, uh, a lot of this is happening simultaneously because I've got a team of people that can help me do all these stuff. Um, at that point, we're hanging blood. You know, he's he's arrested. We got it. We got his pulse back. We've got blood. Pro- I think we gave him six units before he was able to be transferred. And in our shop, we're not a level one trauma center, so we transfer these patients. So um, we also um, were trying to do everything we could to keep this guy warm, because you'll hear them talk about the lethal triad. You all remember that the coagulopathy and acidosis and hypothermia. And so we're trying to keep this guy warm, which is really difficult. Um, when you're trying to also expose them to do a chest tube or, you know, hold pressure or whatever. That's why the most trauma bays that I've ever worked in are like 80 plus degrees. Um, yeah. I, we yeah. 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 We used to keep yeah. bars. Yeah. at
1: like a nice 88. Yeah. And the They're surgeons would come it. in and turn the temp up and... We'd spend the whole day just sweating Sweating. and gross. I remember, I remember as a
0: as a med student, and uh, I did not talk to surgeons as as a med student. I wanted to be as invisible as possible. (laughs) (laughs) But one of my uh, less than uh, socially adept uh, colleagues, student, made some comment. Um, He's like, "Damn, it's hot in here." And one of my turned out to be one of my favorite uh, surgery surgery attendings. Just looked at him. He said, "It's not for you. It's for the patient." And I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) Um, But that's exactly right. You know, this hypothermia, we can control that. We can keep the temperature up. So we're trying to keep this guy warm as well. But we're trying to get him transferred as fast as possible because he needs a trauma surgeon. They're going to have to open this guy up and probably open up chest and abdomen. um, Because I don't know if, yeah, I I just, all I know, he had bad wounds. and we had stopped the external bleeding. We had chest tubes in. He was intubated and secure. I mean, he was as stable as he was going to get in our shop. Uh, we had blood products hanging, um, and then we wanted to get him there. Now, if that's you in the field, the best you can likely do is try to control the hemorrhage and bandage up in a way that allows the air to naturally egress from the chest. Um, but oftentimes even that you know you you can you can only do so much in in the field with that type of situation um
1: some of the flight crews now um will put in chest tubes and Mm -hmm. central lines and the whole bit so i guess it just depends on who you call or who gets there first or whatever
0: yeah
2: yeah but that's once again most of the time that's they've already been seen by the time most flight crews yeah there
0: yeah and i mean you know again if you're you're by yourself. Don't use your cell phone. Take a video. Use your cell phone to call nine one one. You know. I video. mean, I, I, I hate that I have to say that, but it's applicable. It's applicable. It is. It is. Um, and so that's you know, I guess the most uh, dramatic case I've seen recently. Um, I know we've had other cases, but um, I think you know, in terms of trying to focus on. Controlling the hemorrhage and doing what you can to either apply a tourniquet or just apply pressure um, depending on What's applicable? Um, and you know, I guess for any of you out there who've never applied a tourniquet you want to apply it high and tight um, and Craig you want to tell them about that because I know you've probably applied more tourniquets than I have
2: so I, I I've probably have applied a lot of tourniquets <laughs> um, but I can tell you right now the, the hardest part is not just the application of actually, you know, sliding it up the arm or taking it apart and putting it on the arm or the leg, but having somebody screaming at you uh, while you're doing it because you're they're in pain um, and they're bleeding and, and you know they're injured. But that's that's really the hardest part is you know you're putting this thing on you and you're cranking it down and you're checking for a pulse below if there is somewhere where you can check or you're just watching the bleeding. Um, which makes it really a lot more difficult. And then you're, you're cranking because, you know, you're cranking this tourniquet around um, with a lot of force because you're, you're excited and you're trying to do the right thing. uh, And you're trying to stay on your algorithm, right? You're you're saying, okay, he's talking to me, he's yelling. He's talking to me, he's yelling. working on this tourniquet and boom you know you've done it in you know 10-15 seconds and it's on and it's cranked down and it looks okay and uh but yeah it's that to me is probably the hardest part and it's the hardest part to teach um you know medics and, and nurses uh, especially when they're doing pre-hospital stuff um and it's not until they get that exposure that they're you know the exposure creates. You know they have the they have the, I guess the. In classroom knowledge, but once they get the exposure and they're able to combine it, then they get a little bit of confidence with it. Uh, it it changes the, the entire dynamics of how they're going to manage patients from there on forward.
0: Yeah, definitely, and
2: and it's hard for it because physicians and you know, and I'm not saying physicians in general, but. Anybody that practices emergency medicine, like you get this person that comes in with a tourniquet um, and you, you can be an NP, PA, whatever, or even a surgeon. Um, and the first thing you wanna do is like open the thing up and see if it's actually, <laughs> if it's actually still bleeding. Like, I, I can tell you that firsthand, like, cause I've done it, right? Uh, you know, you're checking the wound and you're looking at it and, and like, hey, you know, the lake's not that bad, you know? There's definitely no pulse, it's discolored, it's already cooler than the rest of the body. Let me uncrank this thing and see what happens.
0: Yeah. Well, I'd say that the single biggest mistake that we get on the hospital side is that the tourniquets aren't tight enough. And so I think that right. there's historically that fear that oh, you're going to do you know damage to the limb if you if you put it on too tight or if you leave it on in place too long. Um, the but, hardest part is really the pain. I mean, yeah. the,
2: the thing really genuinely hurts when you once you get
0: it on there. And if you've never had one on. Uh, Put one on. Have someone put one on you. It, it hurts. Like and, it, and if you and, put it, it on your thigh and have somebody crank it down, and I, it, I, it'll change your dynamics of what a pain scale should yeah. be. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you. <laughs> I'll tell you like, if what it's a in,
1: real tenant. <laughs>
0: yeah. If, but if it's not painful, it's not on tight enough. It's not on tight enough. That's absolutely correct. And that's, that's the thing that I think is, is really hard when you're, you've got someone in pain, you're putting them in more, more pain to help them. Um, you know, and it's – I guess it's one of those things where it's, you know, this this idea of, of doing no harm is, is kind of uh, – it's a frustrating. It's like the intent behind that makes yeah. sense, right? But, you know, w- sometimes you have to do harm to do good, and yeah. that sounds weird to say. Um, but it's – you know, you're, you're harming the person in a way by putting that tourniquet on.
2: I wouldn't to, say you're harming well, the definitely not, You're definitely you – know,
0: you're definitely causing Inflicting pain.
2: a little more pain. Yeah, yeah. you're definitely yeah. causing some pain. But at the same time, you're saving their life. Right. So these are your options. You're either going to deal with this really bad pain for a little bit, and then I can treat the pain, uh, but I, I genuinely don't think you're... And that's just me. You know, I mean, I know that you know, we've all seen different things in different parts of the world, and there's a lot of dudes that have made it home because of tourniquets. I can tell you that right now. Well,
0: and the other thing, th- you can leave them on a lot longer than people think. Oh, I mean, yeah. I- Six, eight, twelve. I've even seen some papers that have uh, evaluated uh, 24-hour tourniquets in place, which hopefully is not the majority of people that are dealing with this. Um, But you're not going to do any harm uh, by putting a tourniquet on. Um, Because your alternative, even if they lose a leg, the alternative is that they
1: die. Exsanguinate, yeah. Yeah. They
0: exsanguinate and die. Um,
1: I think by the time you get the tourniquet on in the field and. Hopefully, you they get to a hospital in a sufficient amount of time. As long as it's not any like a you know thoracic wound, or I think that would be sufficient.
0: Yeah, no, no, no tourniquets on the neck. That's
1: you would be surprised.
0: <laughs> that's that's murder, but okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, you would be surprised. Some of the
0: yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure.
1: Arms and legs, please only.
0: Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, but I do think it's worth, you know, learning how to apply a tourniquet. Have someone put it on you so mm-hmm. you know.
2: Even um, a Band-Aid. You would be surprised how much people would have a problem with just putting a Band-Aid on.
0: I believe it. I wouldn't be surprised by that, actually, at all. <laughs> well, and, and I think a lot of people are, especially with, you know.
2: <laughs> Even a pressure dressing. So pressure dressing is actually Pretty a lot more complicated to, to put on. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, and, and it's, it's a little complicated, right? Just a little like all it is is really like a curl X with uh, a, an ace wrap over it uh, which anybody can have in their home right but you try to convince people like hey you should probably have this in your house right and they're like what what just just in case right you might get stabbed by something
0: yeah you might you
2: yeah. might cut yourself with your chainsaw or cut yourself with a handsaw or,
0: or try to fix your lawnmower while it's running I've yeah. seen that yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: you know it, 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 it's just the things that people yeah. uh, do sometimes but i think too the other thing that makes it really challenging even though some of the stuff that we're talking about is simple is the chaos of the situation mm-hmm. and that's where i think simulated ex- you know training is beneficial even if you're an accountant be like okay yeah i hope you never have to deal with a trauma but do you drive to work is there a possibility you could be involved in a motor vehicle collision yes i mean Uh, You know, I mean, you'd be surprised that there's the chance. I mean, it's sure, it might be low, um, but if you have some training in how to do that and in a simulated environment where there's stressors in place and you've got other people screaming and yelling and, and, you know, all these other things going on that you're trying to think and focus while not letting that distract you, it's pretty beneficial to have that simulated experience when it, the patient in front of you is faking it mm-hmm. as opposed to um, when it's real and it matters.
2: I also think that kind of wound um, dictates what you should kind of use as your modality for treatment, right? So, you know, um, there's, a, there's a simple algorithm when it comes to gunshot wounds, right? So if, you, if you're shot with a handgun, the handgun is designed to only put a hole in you And then if you're shot with a rifle, it's designed to put a hole through you. So now you have the small, you know, handgun. you're normally going to have one entrance wound, no exit wound. Then you have a rifle round, which normally is going to put a wound in you and an exit wound. So it's, you know, how to assess the patient. Um, And this, you know, if you're a combat medic or if you're a paramedic and you're responding to it, you know, shots fired, then this is the the algorithm you'll kind of go through right away. Um, And then you have stab wounds, right? Stab wounds are, in my professional experience, a lot more complicated to treat. Right? Because they're deeper, they're going to go in all sorts of different directions, um, and it's overall just a lot harder because you tend to have to pack a lot deeper uh in those scenarios and and if they're in a leg or an extremity you know any any kind of extremity um there's tends to be so much more blood involved because you've opened different you know areas of capillary beds uh versus a gunshot one goes through goes out the other side there's a little bit of blood it's not always a whole lot um Unless it hits them,
1: right? I guess it depends on what you're using. I've seen a lot where they use the hollow points, and those things tumble. And it's, it's obliterating, like it's awful. We had one guy that came in, and he got shot in the shoulder um, on the right, and
2: Did it a single
1: entry, and it blew out the back.
2: Yeah.
1: Like it was awful it was awful so whenever they get with these hollow points because they just go in there and just start tumbling it's yeah one single entry but it's a disaster
0: we had a guy who got shot in the butt and it was fairly like low down on the butt like like high up on the hamstring but it took a turn up and later on i learned the surgeon found the bullet like north of his belly button you know, yeah. when they were running the bowel and, and doing that. So, like, bullets do weird things in the body. Mm-hmm. Um, they're definitely, like you said, the type of bullet mm-hmm. definitely matters. The caliber, the caliber of the bullet definitely matters. Um, but those types of penetrating injuries, you know, where you're most likely going to be having to hold pressure because you're not, there's not a tourniquet application, you know applicable, um, then, you know, you do the best you can to pack it, hold pressure on it. Um, and then call 911, get them to the hospital. Um, and then the other thing, like if you if you have gloves, wear gloves. I mean, it's it's one of those things. You want to protect yourself. But yes. how many people <laughs> carry around yeah. gloves? We have them in the hospital everywhere. We don't even think... I mean, people may now because of COVID, but even that, um, you know. So, you know, you want to be mindful of your own... I think that
1: people are very... Like, I, I don't think they're like us, where we're like, that's the first thing we reach for. But, you know, people just in public. No, but public. They,
0: my, my thought is people might also refrain from helping if they see a bunch of blood pouring out because they're like, well, I don't have gloves. And oh,
3: okay. Take you. a T-shirt.
0: That's what I was going to say. Is yeah. like, take a T-shirt and take like. A
3: t-shirt and you know. Wad it up and exactly. your hand is protected.
0: Yeah. So.
3: And you have a dressing.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I would also, I don't know, I don't have the data, but I would suspect that. You're still pretty safe. I mean, even if the patient in front of you is HIV positive, if you don't have any open wounds on your hands, yeah. you're probably okay. I mean, yeah, I want you to protect yourself as well, but I would you know hate for you not to help just because you were like, oh, I can't I can't use a T-shirt. Yes, you can. So um, just...
1: An article of clothing is better than just standing there staring at somebody. And bleeding to death. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are the kinds of things that, unfortunately, happen to everyday people. That they're not trained for it, and
2: you know. I think even just it, it happening to you know one of your family members, uh, and you know you get an overwhelmed sense of like shock out of it versus what you should get, which is, hey, let me revert back to my training, right? Or you're kind of like me, and then you kind of laugh a little bit, and then you're like, "Oh shit, maybe I should address this, right?" <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, maybe it's true. Yeah.
0: yeah, I've heard all kinds of stories where you know <laughs> doctors think that their kids are like full of it, and they're like, "You're fine, you're fine," and then it's like, eh, "What was your appendix? My bad." <laughs> uh, okay, I should taken you to the yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you need a surgeon. Yeah. But I mean, and that's where maintaining it you know being objective so, yeah, uh, and then also getting some experience if you know if you're not in the medical profession, get you know go to a course yeah uh, get some get some exposure, see what it's like because um, yeah. simple
2: exposure will build a little bit of confidence yeah. and then that little bit of confidence builds a little bit of knowledge, and then you start becoming a little bit more comfortable and if you're like an adventurer right uh, Oh, yeah. you got to have, like, some of this stuff some in the Some kind of basic yeah. first aid. Yeah. 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 If you're an outdoorsy guy, you got to have. And, it, and even, to me, um, you know, one of the things that I, I kind of harp on, and especially on my medical teams, is, you know, don't be scared to get criticized, right? Like, don't be scared to, like, get exposed and get criticized and get coached. Because the way I do things is not always the right way. Right? And sometimes I need somebody to bring me back in and be like, hey, you know what? You, the way you put that tourniquet on took too long, right? And you need to do it a little bit faster, and this is a faster way. Or, you know what? We're not going to use a cat, too. We're going to use a different kind of you know, tourniquet. Um, so, it, you know, it just all depends. And then... Um,
0: or the way you've been doing it might have been Right. For the past 10 years but there's new data out that shows that now there's a new way yeah. and it's actually shown to be superior and here's why yeah. and that's like one of those things when the people are like well this is how we've always done it it's like when well, you might have always been doing it wrong yeah. like you know or you that, could have
2: always been doing it slower yeah
0: yeah, yeah. so i think yeah, don't be afraid to get criticized and learn and also just having that additional ability to communicate to the pre-hospital ems teams here's you know here's where the you know, laceration the wound is here's what i did it's going to help them so much more because I know oftentimes when we're talking to EMS, whether it's, you know, a cardiac arrest or, or just an altered patient from home, it's like, what did the family tell you? It's like, dude, the family didn't, they couldn't tell me anything. Like, yeah, that's so, so not helpful to EMS, which then is not helpful to us. And we're having to just, which is know, not
1: helpful to the patient,
0: which is definitely, yeah, that's, that's yeah. really what I'm getting at because we're having to, uh, cast this giant net of all these tests that, may or may not be beneficial, but we don't know because we don't know what we're dealing with. So we can't focus in on the problem right away. It delays the care and impacts the patient. So the more you can communicate, you know, what you see, what you were able to do, or even able not to do. It's like, Hey, listen, you know, I'm not, I don't know how to put a chest tube in, but I'm worried this guy's, you know, breathing is really kind of funny. I don't I see, a, you know, the chest rise is altered, you know, and, and I don't know, I don't know why. I mean, that communicates a lot to a, a, you know, a paramedic who arrives on the scenes like, okay, thank you. I need to look into this. You know, they're good. They're going to have those tools. I mean, yeah, they'll, I doubt most people are carrying a stethoscope around, but the paramedics will be able to listen as there are their bilateral breath sounds.
2: The, the other thing that's, a, that's really important, especially on the pre-hospital side, going into, uh, you know, into the hospital and then once they're in the hospital, what happens next, right? What, what I've learned over my career in, in moving patients is there's a certain amount of physical reserve that everybody has, right? And so you start losing that physical reserve through each transfer. So the minute they pick that patient up off the ground, you know, overseas or here, depending on the type of wound, um, they put them on the, you know, the gurney or the helicopter or the EMS rig and then they move them to the hospital. And in route, that person is either, they're either getting better from treatment or if there is like minimal treatment because of the amount of, emer- or the, the level of emergency that's there, um, they tend to start to decompensate, right? And then you get into the, to the bay, the ER bay, or the trauma bay, and you move them again and that movement takes that physical reserve and then they decompensate a little bit more and then of course because we all love CTs we'd be like we need to CT this guy so then we move him again and,
0: and then again and then <laughs> and
2: they go back to the bed yeah. <laughs> then they come back to the trauma bay and guess what now your patient's crashing because... And it's not so much that they're losing all this blood or all this other stuff. It's just that, like, man, they're just spent, dude. You know, they've run, a, you know, two ultramarathons while just trying to stay alive. And, and that ends up consuming everything. A lot of people want to put a lot of blame on, you know... And this is what I've seen is, like, they're like, oh, well, they, you know, they were already like this before they got here. Maybe, right... Uh, and then of course there's arguments that develop because of it right so then the next time you see those guys you're like hey you know what happened to that guy and they're like well they died and it's like well why you know I dropped him off he was alive right and it's like well you know you're you're making all these moves and sometimes the intervention um, if you're not really proactive in intervention um, that can kind of dictate how this kind of develops so some folks don't see it until it's already too late and then it's it's obviously too late. But then if you're seeing it and you're catching it, especially as a nurse who's with the patient the whole time, uh, and I'm not putting all the blame on the nurses, but the, you know they have to be able to communicate. And to me, that's another issue that has developed over time. Is like there's a serious gap in communication um, from nursing staff to physician staff to physician staff to physician staff and to even administrators where folks need to be able to say, hey, this is what I need and this is why I need it uh, versus, you know, just kind of sitting there and being scared to, like, talk to this person or even not knowing how to communicate it whatsoever or not even able to recognize it. So once again, you know, the education component is is, is
0: a big, giant piece. Well, I know a lot of trauma docs, at least where I trained, <laughs> refer to the CT scanner as the tunnel of death. Yeah. And the I think that the most critical decision they would have to make is, is this patient stable to go to the CD scan? Cause yeah, you're right. As medical professionals, we all want the CD scan. We all want like, what's that extra information? But mm-hmm. not only are you, you know, uh, taxing the patient who might be stable just because like you said, they're already, they're stable, but they're still critical. Yeah. Um, you know, you're potentially dislodging, uh, tubes, uh, reopening wounds, clots all kinds of things just all sorts of insanity yeah and so i think that's one of those one of the most critical decisions that they have to make is okay is this person really stable to go to the scanner uh or do we need to go to the or now i'm not a trauma surgeon so i don't yeah Yeah, i'm not either i don't have to make that decision um but i could definitely tell that's when they really seem to hone in it's like okay and i guess sometimes it's obvious to them that Yes, this goes straight to the ER. Yes, this goes straight to the CT scanner, but it's those, you know that gray area that is, you know, makes it really really challenging. And I know um, when I was in med school, I got to do a pretty cool rotation uh, as a wilderness medicine rotation as one of my electives, my that senior year. It was a lot of fun. We uh, I got to go. It was through Cornell University. Went to New York, and we spent two. It was a month. We spent two weeks in the ER, uh, which was still pretty fun because you're a med student. Um, and then two weeks in the Adirondacks. And it was some of the best simulation training I've, I've ever had. They had been doing it for just over a decade. So they had really refined their simulation training. But one of the things that they talked a whole lot about was transport. Because, of course, this being rem- remote and wilderness medicine, you start to see that the transport, how it impacts the patient, but also how it impacts the team doing the transport and how difficult, physically difficult it is to do that. And how <laughs> they had us, I want to say they had us walk like 50 yards with carrying someone with a makeshift um, stretcher. Nope. And mm-hmm. it took us like an hour. Know, it was yeah. embarrassing. I mean, you know, and you're just like, and, you know, of course if you have to navigate through trees or over rocks or anything and you're you, you finish and you're just like, Oh man, I'm tired. And then you you're, you're tired. You forget to see if your bandage held <laughs> up, or if the you know like those kinds of things. Uh, but you know that that's what we did this weekend, and it was it was you know it's a real eye opener
2: to watch guys try to manage a patient after walking 400 meters with a with a stretcher, and their forearms feel swollen, and their legs are burning, and they're dripping sweat, and you know then it's just um, it, it's difficult. It's super difficult. Yeah. And then, and then I had somebody in the emergency room play like, uh, hey, what you did isn't good enough kind of role. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and you That's can just imagine, like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, we just walked in the sun, in Texas heat, 400 meters, and my arms don't work and you're telling me, they're like, yeah, your tourniquet isn't very good and your your pressure dressing here isn't very good and you know, this guy needed needle decompression. What have y'all been doing out there? You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's just to completely mess with their psyche uh, yeah. and, you know, obviously to get them to, like, realize, like, nothing is going to be perfect, right?
0: Yeah, and that's, I think, going to be an essential thing for everyone to remember, um, whether you're, you know, just a, a non-medical professional, but definitely if you're a medical professional, is so that's one of the other things. So there were about 12 of us in this wilderness medicine rotation, um, and they had around 15 scenarios that they had created for us. Uh, everything from like mass trauma to um, you know simple bee sting, allergy type thing. Um, Maybe not so simple if there is anaphylactic shock in the middle of nowhere, right?
1: Um,
0: But the very last scenario, the 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 patient, uh, the that was played by a resident, uh, died. Uh, Just that was that was the that was the end result. And after every scenario, we debriefed: What did you do good? What do you need to do better? How would you feel about it? That kind of stuff. And there was actually a, a paper associated with each that, that had been assigned. So there's a paper associated with each scenario, which is pretty cool. Like, you'd read the paper. Um, you're supposed to read it before you went on the rotation. I'm pretty sure we all read it, like, <laughs> that, the night before. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, so you had that. You had the discussion, debrief. Um, what would you do good? What do you need to do better? What would you learn from this? The last one, the, the, the whole debrief was about, um, this patient was going to die, it didn't matter what you were gonna do. And the reason that they wanted that, they wanted us to know, even though it was a, a scenario and it was fake, they wanted us to know kind of what it's like to do everything right and everything you can and still fail. Mm-hmm. Because that's what happens sometimes.
2: That's a really yeah. good scenario.
0: And it, it is, it is. And obviously, you know, years and years later, it stuck with me. and. Yeah. You know that's that's one of those things that I, I feel like is really important for medical professionals uh, to realize that you can do everything right, and the patient's still going to die. Um, and that's not just in trauma; that's in everything. yeah, in
1: every every other medical case. Sometimes that happens.
0: But if you're if you're not a medical professional, um, especially if you watch any TV or movies. The real, the the expectations set up by movies is unrealistic. And I mean, even though everyone knows movies are fake, it still tends to, um, encourage. That's what people
1: remember. Yeah. That's what people remember.
0: They tend to think, oh, well, if if I go to the ER, they'll do some chest compressions and they'll just bring them back. Maybe, maybe not. And maybe it brings their pulse back, but they're brain dead and it's no, you know, so the expectations are unrealistic because yeah. of what Grace people see. Yeah, Somebody,
1: Anatomy, where is having chest compressions done, and then they get to the hospital, and then two hours later... They do a liver lighten.
0: transplant
2: and a heart transplant. Yeah, yeah.
1: they're and talking. they
0: wake up and yeah. dance. Oh my God, great, thanks yeah. for
1: saving my life, yeah. Yeah,
0: and then they go have sex in the closet. It's really... There, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's like yeah. totally. It's like totally appropriate. Get in Lambo and take Yeah, off. Of, yeah. Course. yeah. of course, of yeah. course. And that's the thing where, you know, that, that kind of <laughs> that kind of training... Um, even if you're not a medical professional, just kind of knowing, hey, look, sometimes, th- 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 sometimes you just lose, mm-hmm. and it sucks. Um, but it's really, uh, it was it was good training. That uh, that that was definitely one of those scenarios that stuck out in my mind. I mean, it would have probably stuck out in my mind anyway because the scenario was based on a, a bear mauling one of the campers. <laughs> and it oh was, like, yikes. It was And they they did it pretty good because they would do the moulage where they would like mm-hmm. put the put the blood or the the stuff on them, and nice. so, because it was, uh, I guess there were, I don't know, five or six attendings, but there were five or six residents from Cornell's program in emergency medicine, so it was almost a one-to-one ratio of, like, med students to residents and or attendings, um, which made it really, really pretty fun, but they would moulage up, and just, <laughs> this guy was like, damn, you look bad, <laughs> it was, even though it was fake, it was they look bad. You're fucked. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so um, we can tell that
3: just by looking at you.
0: But is that ever? I mean, is that the is that kind of training stuff that your guys go through in military? Um, I do,
2: I do train and try to educate, to teach failure, right? Because in, as we all know, once you start practicing in the real world. Uh, And, and, you know, if you deploy, you're going to have to learn to adjust what you do immediately after you fail. Um, You don't get the luxury of, hey, you know what, I'm going to go have sex in the closet and I'm going to go get in the Lambo and I'm going to go turn the TV off and everything's going to go back to normal. That doesn't happen in the real world, right? In the real world, uh, there is no commercial. There is another patient coming in 30 seconds later, and I I absolutely think it's imperative that when you know you have young students and you have uh, young minds that you teach them to understand that l- losing and recovering from losing um, is is one of those traits that you need for the rest of your life because people graduate from MP school and they can't find a job people graduate from med school and they, they don't get into residency right and the, and so that's losing uh, and it's a, it's a hit to their psyche and it's the same thing you know you're working in the ER and the ICU and you have multiple patient fatalities um, and that's losing and you can sit back and you can work your ass off for hours and hours and hours. And so I, for my military dudes, yeah, absolutely. I, I, train them to the point that I want them to know that you're going to lose. But at the same time, you have to learn how to recover because guess what's going to come in the door in the next you know, 30 yeah. seconds. It's going to happen all over again
0: in this next one. You know, hopefully you win and you do the right thing. One of the mentors that I had way before I ever even went back to medical school, I wasn't even in medicine. Um, He had a quote that I saved um, that I I really like. Uh, This guy's name is Kid Edmondson, um, and he's a really successful businessman, uh, started several companies, um, but he does a a lot with uh, business professional development, Um, and I was fortunate enough to work with him early in my career, but it was way before medicine. But the, the, The quote is this, success is not defined by how often you triumph nearly as much as how often and how quickly you rise from the ashes of defeat. And I thought that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. That those people who can bounce back, those are the ones who are going to be successful.
2: Yeah. Those are the ones to watch out for. Yeah. Because yeah. those are the
0: ones and you almost want to gravitate to them. Yeah. Because they're the ones who can take failure in stride, learn from their mistakes. And I think that's one of those things that I know in... Uh, <laughs> I know in, like medicine, that's probably one of those things that's hardest to teach medical students and residents, because they're so used to being at the top of the class and the smartest and mm-hmm. the best of whatever. And then you realize like you're going to fail.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And you need to learn from that, and that's OK. Well, the problem with it in medicine is a lot of times when we fail, the patient gets hurt or dies. Yeah. So it makes it even worse uh, in, in a way, um, but um, I kind of laugh because like I, um, uh, <laughs> one of my kids' favorite book series is actually uh, Jocko's uh, kids' series called Warrior Kid, um, and I actually really love it. I mean, I kind of joke if you're an adult, you should read it. Like it's <laughs> a, it's about this ten-year-old boy whose uncle comes and works with him in the summer, um, and basically teaches him life lessons that are, are good. But one of the things that, that he, he gets the kid um, involved in doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, like he, just to build his confidence, help work with his uh, uh, strength. And anyway, the kid's going through a, a time where the, he's pretty good at it, and a coach wants him to compete, and the kid doesn't want to compete. And he's like, no, no. And finally, the uncle sort of tears down, like, "Why don't you want to do?" What comes out? The kid's scared, right? He's nervous. He's like, "I don't want to lose." Like, I've never been in a competition before. Um, I'm not really comfortable with it. And I loved what uh, Jocko put in the book that you know I've really I've tried to push on my kids is he says he says you have two options if you compete, you win or you learn. He's like, you don't lose if you lose the only way you really lose is if you don't learn from it. Correct. He's like, so if you take that approach to things, you win or you learn, I thought that was pretty powerful. I I really, I mean, I know it's coming from a kid's book, but I mean, and that's been one of those things where I've been able to (laughs) use that on my own kids, you know, when they're like nervous about their swim meet and I'm just like, hey, you win or you learn. And they're like, oh yeah, like that, that processes with them. They realize like, oh, okay, that's right. Yeah, it's a different perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think we have to take that perspective in, in the medicine too. Like um, the, the guy I was telling you about earlier, the guy who got stabbed, we got a you know, call back from university. He died in the operating room. I didn't get a chance to talk to the trauma surgeon because I did want some feedback. Hey dude, did I, did I manage that? How you would have uh, managed it at a, uh, you know, an, an outlying hospital. Um, but I didn't get it. I didn't get that chance. And that's one of the, the harder things, but you know, you, well it goes back to march right i mean
2: all you can do is address the first part because if you can't get past m you're not going to worry there's not going to be an a to worry about yeah um that's that's that algorithm and then you think of like the atls you know hemorrhagic you know what is it scale yeah one two three four and you're like you know his heart rate's 160 well that's four already right so i mean guess what you know, you're looking yeah. at March, you're looking at the scale, you're like, okay, here's my... Yeah. And you're kind of like SOL at that point, right? Yeah, and
1: survival yeah. likelihood yeah. is pretty nil.
0: Yeah, and you you can only have so much staff sticking their fingers yeah. in their hands and teeth. Well, and I think, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that, you know, my perspective on that was, yeah, he came in dead, so I got him better than he was when he got here. That's true. But the end result was that he died. So in between, I still... Would have liked some feedback, like, "Hey, I thought you did this well, or I thought I sure. would have done this bet I would have done this, or you know I, I don't know, I just because I don't get that every now and again, I do like in the hospital, um, but we don't have trauma surgery at our hospital, so any of that stuff that goes away, um just don't get that feedback that I think would be would be helpful um, you know because again that this this situation, the learning would be like, okay, if this happens again." Could I have learned something that could then benefit the next person. Yeah. As opposed to, well, I'll will still follow the the March ATLS. Like I'll still do my uh, algorithms and I'll still do everything to the best I know. But that's just it. Like there may be some. There's always new information coming out, and so, um, and, and I probably should have made more of an effort to, you know, try to get in touch with the trauma surgeon. But like you said earlier just after that there's another sprained ankle that comes in and you've got to continue you've got to keep moving on yeah. you got to keep going to the next patient and kind of have that same um you know sense of urgency even if even if you know it may not be an emergency there's still <laughs> a sense that you've got to treat it yeah. and get it home so you can open up the bed for the next patient i think the irony is that
2: one person that should be writing the Prescanning score is not going to, and then the person that is going to write the Prescanning score yeah. and evaluation is yeah. the person that shouldn't
0: be. Yeah, so, yeah, and
2: that's that's yeah. the irony in the
0: the world that we live in, right? Yeah, it is. It, it is, and it's hard to take that. It's hard to psychologically make that transition when someone comes in absolutely complaining about something that is clearly not an emergency best case scenario, it might be an urgent care visit when you've just basically seen a guy dying and this person's, you know, complaining and been mean to the nursing staff and you're just like... Their three-month-old rash. Yeah, it's like an emergency now. So, um, but we've, you know, got to take that in stride and I guess kind of use that as training in and of itself. Like, it's a sort of like uh, mental gymnastics, uh, just to kind of go from that one patient to the next, mm-hmm. that you know, makes it uh, makes it challenging. Um, but every now and again, I've been able to diplomatically put patients in their place um, by saying, "Hey, well, I'm really I'm sorry I wasn't able to get to you fast enough. That the guy next door just died." Um, yeah, and and. I, it's really hard not to be a dick when I say that because I'm so usually just with the uh, patients who are acting that way. Yeah, um, and it, that goes back to what I said earlier, even, you know, you're like you get emotionally
2: involved and you get tasked and you and you know, you're sweating and everything else under the sun. Same thing for the nursing staff, right? Oh yeah. Like the nursing staff's all, you know, bought into this entire thing. They've pulled chest tubes out and, you know, lines and rapid infusers and all
0: this other stuff and out of the seven people helping me in that trauma case four of them had to change scrubs because of all the blood everywhere I would have except I, it was mostly on my shoes and so I was like well yeah, I don't have another shoe you know like and it just you know it's just one of those things where I had the luxury of gowning up but the nurses who were getting everything prepped they they were like no shit we got to do work we got we don't have time for this we'll get a new pair of scrubs yeah and that's not to say they weren't wearing gloves and masks and that kind of stuff but
1: you know that stuff gets everywhere it sometimes. just does
0: it just does you just have a squirter yeah um and then you have one that you find that you're like oh i didn't know it was there too mm-hmm. um and and that kind of goes to exposure which is in both algorithms um in terms of uh Really thoroughly evaluating your patient, which I also know in the pre-hospital setting, especially for like public persons, non-medical persons, um, that's um, a lot more sensitive um, and and, and rightly so. Like, you know, they need to make sure. But one thing you can do is you can do like a look like is there blood on the pants on the backside and the front side? You know you can just kind of look uh, and take take stock and evaluation of that you know or is there like you said that the was it a rifle wound so it went in and out or do you have an entry and an exit wound or mm-hmm. just just an entry wound so you want to kind of you know evaluate the patients you don't necessarily have to take clothes off or anything but you you want to know um, yeah
1: there was one i remember this was obviously years back but there was uh a gentleman that came in that was shot and it didn't go to our trauma bay because it was like a wrist or something or a hand. And so they were like, "Ah, eh, superficial, just send him over to the other side. And he had gone over there and was just acting all kinds of erratic and, you know, they thought probably, you know, schizophrenic or high or something. And so the issue was the exposure. They didn't get him properly naked And so the guy died, and so now they're trying to get everything off and, you know, get him uh, moved over to, like, a quiet room so I guess family could see. Well, they got everything off, and I guess they didn't realize that he was shot, like, through a wrist or a hand or something, but his hand happened to be up here, like, by his neck. And so he had, like, a big giant jacket on or something. So when they took the jacket off, like, it had gone, like, through his carotid. And so they were like, oh, man... Kind of missed that one. Yeah, <laughs> they're like our back, but you know what? It did. Again, exposure. So they're like, oh, yikes! That that uh, we missed that one.
0: All right, so that that leads us to the, what's what's our segment on the craziest shit we've ever seen, kind of stuff. Like oh each yeah. Us, all right, so what, Wendy? What's the craziest trauma that you think you've ever seen? It just it don't have to be. Just pick one. I just. I'm,
3: I don't know that it's the craziest, but it was probably the one that I was, like, most intrigued with that really was, like, okay, this is really what I want to do. This is some cool shit, basically, and so I was actually still a nursing student, and in our program in Virginia, you got to pick, and I was already kind of you know, like your internship or whatever. So I was already kind of interested in the ER. I didn't really like anything else, which is, you know, you're real nervous by the time you get to the ER because that's the last thing. And if you're not already liking something, you're probably a little fucked with that degree. Um, And so I was at a level one trauma center doing an internship at night. And Virginia is kind of an interesting mix because it's real urban, you know, but then some of the outlying areas are real rural, And so this guy had just gotten out of prison, was in a rural area with his, who he thought was his significant other and his friend. And it turns out the friend and the significant other had apparently gotten together anyways. There was a big argument. And the guy got hit in the head with an axe. And so we get this call from, you know, Air Rescue coming in, like, oh, we have this guy, he's got a head injury, he's got an axe, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh, he's probably dead, right? Like, this is not going to go well for him. You cannot be hit in the head with an axe.
1: You'd be surprised.
3: Yes. So, new nursing students, like, my second night, and I'm all nervous, like, I get to start the IV, whatever. Um, And he rolls in, and he's sitting up on the stretcher talking with an axe sticking out of his head and cursing and, like, threatening to kill everybody. And it was just, you know, one of those things where it was like, this is cool. Like, I need to do this. A little bit this. surreal. Yeah. Like, I need to do this for the rest of my life. And it just happened. They, I mean, they cracked him, and it just happened to divide his hemispheres, and he just got super... You know, I don't know how he ended up doing. That's, you know, the bad part about ER medicine is we don't always know the outcome, but he came in awake, alert, talking, pissed off and
0: yeah.
2: wow.
3: without any neuro deficit other than, you know, wow. <laughs>
0: some hardware.
3: Yeah. Some interesting new, new apparel. So,
0: Jeez. Mandy, what about you?
1: Oh, gosh. It's hard to put you on the uh, spot I know, when you've had years and years of this. I know because they're all exposure. So um, one of the strangest ones—I well, guess strange—but it was this um, so gentleman that was um, in the back of a car. Uh, he probably was like in his 60s and uh, got shot by some rando person. Mind you, it's like 3, 4 in the morning, and they were not handing out Bibles for church or anything. So um, he was sitting in the back of the car, and the car got shot up, and so he came in, GSW to the head. And so kind of like your friend here with the axe, he's talking and able to tell us stuff, but where he got hit was like um, occipital, and the bullet was still lodged in there. And so um, he had some bleeding going on, but still able to talk. Um, I know he would lost his vision because of it. He couldn't see. And so neurosurgery came in, and he's evaluating him, and, you know, we're looking at his head and whatever. And um, he's asking me, he's like, did y'all pack the wound? And I'm like, no. Like, why would we pack a wound in a head? Like, no. So, like, I'm helping him, and he's like cleaning him off and getting everything out and it's like the cushion from the back of the headrest oh damn yeah was like also embedded in there and so we're just pulling chunks <laughs> of seat from the guy's head wow and I was like Oh, and it's like foam and all kinds <laughs> yeah. of stuff. and
3: I'm sure it was really clean.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. and so yeah. I was just like, and I told the neurosurgeon, I was like, yeah, I, I don't think this is going to bode well for him. He's like, yeah. I think the guy lived for like three days, and after that, that was the end okay. of that. But yeah. I, I just was like. That's wild. Yeah, I'm just like, you got a hole in your head. There's car foam in there, and you're still like talking and mm-hmm. telling me. Stuff. Couldn't see anymore. Like it just yeah. it blew out like his yeah. optic nerve and stuff. But sure. I was just like, Damn. wow, this is That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of funny. Yeah.
0: Like you're sitting there. Yeah. Craig, what's yours? Well,
2: I mean, I don't know if I should go back to like the nursing school one or, uh, <laughs> <Why not? laughs> which, which is probably that's a good kind day of like basically launched my career, I guess. Um, I was not a very good student and I was very argumentative and I hated all my teachers. So I remember um, I finally got sent to the emergency room and I was in the trauma bay and I really didn't want to be there because I was really bored and nothing was happening and they brought this guy in that got run over by a crane. He went over and picked up his hat and for whatever reason he like could not get back up like his legs gave out. And laid in front of the crane, and the crane, like, ran over his legs. What happened was, uh, the bone, like, his femur bone shot up through his hip and was curled up. And then his tibs came out the heels and was curled up on the end. I've never seen anything like it in my entire life. Still haven't to this day. Um... He was obviously in a lot of pain and was bleeding out all over the place. Um, very hard to put any kind of tourniquet on him whatsoever. Uh, so they actually opened him right there. They opened both femurs and they clamped both the uh, femoral and the venous, um, the femoral mm-hmm. artery and, the, and the, the femoral vein. They clamped him right there in the trauma bay. And uh, they took him back and like you know, took his legs off.
1: Um, damn. Every time I tell hip, a story, it reminds me of like the
2: crate. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, so, so they mean, did a bilateral
1: hip.
2: It was basically like a bilateral mm-hmm. hip disarticulation, is what it came down to. And, and uh, it was funny because I got to see him again when I was up in the, the trauma ICU. And uh, I remember when we were in there, like it was really the smell of it, right? So you're sitting there and like you smell all this blood, and you guys know exactly what I'm mm-hmm. talking about. Uh, and then of course the guy's screaming and it's like okay now he's passing out so obviously and I didn't know shit I was this awesome and then I remember like <laughs> I looked over at his arm and it had this like born to die you know tattoo and I was like hey, that's kind of irate you know like it's <laughs> kind of comical right at this moment right <laughs> but yeah that was that was probably like the, the first of the very many that would come later on
0: yeah I always tell people that I mean you're your car wrecks are probably the most grisly. I mean, you can get some some bad. I don't know Paper mills. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I,
1: I was like, train I Rex, haven't seen combine train
3: wrecks. Yeah, A, 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 A,
0: train
1: wrecks, train wrecks,
0: combines. Ieds. Are, oh, okay, yeah. I haven't seen those. I haven't seen those. Ieds. But I can tell you that right now. I'd say like, maybe not the craziest, but one of the two, two of the coolest things I, I've seen were actually more radiology um, findings. But then um, this was in training. Both uh, individuals were called, at two separate events, but both times it was called in as a trauma. One was a gunshot wound to the head, one was a gunshot wound to the chest. Of course, everything gets activated. Go in there and uh, in both situations, the patients were stable-ish, talking and all this, and got the CT scan of the guy that had been shot in the head, uh, shot pretty much in the forehead, maybe a little bit over the right or left eye one, and, um, like, you know, they got the bleeding controlled and on this scan, even on the, uh, uh, on the scout film, you could see this flattened bullet against his skull. And it was just crazy. This, you could see the bullet just didn't break through and it didn't even crack the skull. And of course that just made him think he was bulletproof. Not, yeah. It was not helpful, <laughs> but it was crazy. You could see the bullet just flattened against his skull. Um, the other patient who was shot in the chest it's kind of in the middle of the chest um again stable they decided to take him to ct scan I got the ct scan and the bullet had actually it was actually pressing in on the aorta like Ooh. tinting it in and it didn't penetrate the aorta at all but it was like you know one millimeter more maybe Yikes. It would have been dead before he got there, but it was, it was like, you know, instead of, you know, round, it was like Go
1: by a lotto pressed. ticket, buddy. Holy yeah. it was pressed yeah. in, and
0: you could just see that on the scan, and you're just like, you've got to be kidding me. That is the luckiest MFR I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, no, I would not want to be the trauma surgeon taking that out, because it's probably, like, <laughs> terrible <tarampanating laughs> something. <laughs> Yikes. But those are some crazy radiology findings, I thought, so... All right, to wrap up, if you see a trauma, uh, make sure you're safe before you do anything. Yeah. Make sure the area is safe before you do anything. And then, um, focus on the bleeding, uh, control the bleeding, pressure, tourniquet, um, because that's going to kill them fastest. Um, call 911. 911, uh, you know, and then, uh, try to, try to get involved in a course where you can get some basic, uh, pre-hospital trauma training, um, and, uh ops med group will have one for you. So, you know, we'll plug that in as well, but anybody else got anything?
1: Mm -hmm. Nope.
0: All All right, guys. Enjoyed it. Yeah. Our hope with this podcast, but did you die is to provide education and entertainment by bringing you insights into our experiences to help you better understand critical aspects of medicine. We hope that our stories provide you an insight into both the technical and human side of medicine. Our ultimate goal is to help you develop the technical, mental, and emotional tools to handle emergent events. If you are interested in learning more about the training and consulting services offered by Ops Medical Group and how our leadership and teamwork platforms can be of service to your hospital, medic teams, or business, you can contact us through our website, opsmedicalgroup.com, which is opsmedgrp.com, and please follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Lastly, although we are medical professionals, we are not your personal medical professional. This podcast is in in no way to serve as diagnostic information or advice, nor is it to replace any personal medical care that you may need. If you are worried that you may need medical care, please see your private physician or closest emergency department. If you think that you need emergent care, please dial 911.